everybody. My name is Sir Topham Hatt, and it is my pleasure to inform you that you're about to listen to the Right on Track podcast. All aboard! Hello and welcome to Right On Track, the podcast where we discuss all things to do with Thomas the Tank Engine and the Railway Series. And this, my friends, is episode 39. My name is Tom Denham. Never fear, I'm never joined alone. I am joined to my left by Connor Jonas. Connor, how are you? I'm doing well, Denham. How are you going this fine, fine day? I'm doing fantastic because to my right is my other host, Tom Parry. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, why am I to the right-hand side, though? Is this some kind of political statement you're making? No, Dan? no, 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 no. You're, you're his right-hand man. Ah, that's for that's anybody that who gets yeah. a reference to that particular musical. <laughs> no, no. I regret to tell everybody I have not consumed Hamilton at all. Oh, that must be nice. That must be nice. What do you... How, how, well, apparently it's not, because I keep having people chastising me for not having watched Hamilton or even listened to the soundtrack, so... Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to have to agree with them all, uh, Parry, because you must absolutely listen to Hamilton. But this isn't a podcast about Hamilton. This is a podcast about Thomas, and we're going to talk about Thomas episodes. Parry... Which episodes are they going to be today? The stories we're going to be reviewing today, Denim, are called A Surprise for Percy, Make Someone Happy, and Busy Going Backwards. And to add to that, we have something very, very special for this episode. Ooh, yes we do. Mm, Yes, coming up later in this episode of Right on Track, we are talking to... Mike O'Donnell, who is one of two people responsible for the music you hear through the first seven series of Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends. We are so excited to talk to him. We can't wait to bring that to you. But first of all, Connor, what are we going to be talking about first up? First up, we're going to be looking at a surprise for Percy. It's a, a rather melodic day in the coal mines as Percy is being chastised by the trucks for being much too slow. The trucks were still grumbling, and there was more of them than ever. You're much too small to pull all of us. We want another engine or we'll be struggling up the hill all night. All night, all right, you can puff and blow. But on that hill, you're still too slow. S-s-s-slow yourself, stuttered Percy. Temper, temper, giggled the trucks. Percy decided just to carry on. I love the singing of the trucks in this episode. The singing I mean, has returned. The singing has returned. It's got Michelangelis this time rather than uh, Ringo Starr. But no matter, you know, he's a worthy substitute, I believe. And it's not the only clip of the trucks singing. I mean, this clip we just heard, it wasn't so much them singing. It was more them yelling lyrics, <laughs> limericks, we could say. But there is this really, really great clip early on of the truck singing that, you know, it's just too good not to play. Let's roll that. And then we can talk, you know, <laughs> then we can talk about the story proper. 
Next morning, Percy puffed back to the coal mines. When he arrived, the truck started teasing him. Percy, Percy, green and small, he's no use to us at all. Around the yards he'll puff and blow, but on the hills he's oh so slow. Be quiet! I reckon that singing alone justifies why you need to see this story. Because it's just too good. It's brilliant. It's wonderful there. But unfortunately, there is another story to go with it, and... Uh, it's as, as as much as I love uh, a surprise for Percy. There is these little niggles with it, but um, I am getting ahead of myself. Before we get into that, we should discuss the story. Percy is working in the coal yards. It's all Percy has been doing for the past however many weeks. He even the sight of Bertie and Toby can't cheer him up. And during one of his routine journeys back to the is it is he coming from the coal yards or is he going to the coal yards? I can't remember. He's cu- he's coming from the mine to the yards. Yes, that's all right. So he's coming from the mine to the yards, and as he's going up the steep hill, his wheels slip, a coupling snaps, and then the truck starts slowly rolling down the steep hill, getting faster and faster, and then they run away essentially. Yeah. And the entire story is leading up to this runaway and how it is stopped. You know, what I must say is one of the most spectacular chases. Nah, it's not that spectacular. Well, I wouldn't say it's spectacular due to normal chases in the show. But what I will put down for it, which you rarely see anywhere else is that this is a road rail chase. Hmm. We saw all the way back in Series 2 of the show, The Runaway, as Thomas was running away, we had Harold the helicopter jumping in to help save the day as he transported uh, experts, guards, conductors, and inspectors to help slow Thomas down. However, in this scenario, as the trucks are running away... The Fat Controller and Bertie the Bus jump in to help out. Now, this is where the story starts to lose me a little. Because we can assume that the Fat Controller, he's based in Knapford or Tidmouth or one of those built-up areas. And we... I isn't exactly made clear where the story is supposed to be taking place, but it looks to be a little rural village in the middle Mm. of the island. So how is it that Sir Topham got from his office to that place in a speedy amount of time. Not only that, it says that the yard manager is who informs Sir Topham first, which means that Sir Topham is actually, for some reason, situated near the mines at the moment, which I find even more confusing, because it is a singular mine which according to Railway Series law, shouldn't even exist on the island because it's a coal mine. Yet, somehow he has got his own personal office there, which looks just as elaborate as every other office he owns. Well, it's not really specified how far away from Natford this place could be. It could be an offshoot branch line specifically uh, for the coaling plants, um 
and it happens to be that the fat controller is within easy reach of getting here by a car. It may be a closer by car than it is by rail, uh, because Miner's Halt um, it seems like a bit of a nestled away uh, village and station. So by rail could be a distance, but by car it could be different and easier for him to get to. For those unsure, we're talking about Miner's Halt is a small single platform station that appears in this episode. It's never mentioned by name. Uh, we only see it there, and Toby with Henrietta stops there during the episode. Um, this is assumably a more so private company-based station, especially with the name like Miner's Holt. Uh, an example stems to mind in real life here. Uh, in Australia, Victoria, I used to pass every day heading back home from uh, uni and school, uh, an abandoned General Motors station, which back in the 50s was a custom-built station built right next to the old uh, car factory uh, near Dandenong, Australia, uh, which is derelict and standing there now, and it runs right onto the back of the property. So anyone wanting to go to work there would catch a train, get off at that station, and that was that. No sort of public customer could get off at that station. But that's what I believe Miner's Holt is, a uh, private company-hosted station. In that case, it's probably more than likely that the houses that you see in this area, as well as being... Uh, farmland and uh, small businesses, um, all the residential buildings could very much likely uh, be the accommodation that uh, the mine workers and their families live in. And I think I got to say, this is probably one of my favorite sets in the whole show, just the way it's pictured um in every shot it looks really beautiful i just can't really put my finger on it but it seems so far away and distant from uh what else we see uh in series five and in uh other locations in the show yeah despite this being the only time we ever see this location of miners halt which considerably a majority of the episode takes place in, apart from the coal mines themselves, it is really well detailed. And you never see it again. Just looking at uh, close-up production stills of this set, I really love how tightly packed all the buildings are and they're quite tall and you can tell that there's a lot stacked in there but there's so much going on um and the blue stone uh really looks nice to station as well it's great now you know what um this scenery and this construction this architecture reminds me of what does it remind you of postman pat weirdly yeah that's a very good point I can get yeah. that. I can get that. Yeah, because you've got the villages with their built-in houses and their greystone walls, and you've got roadside fences which are made of stone as well, particularly the ones that uh, separate the road and the rail. So, mm. yeah, I, I just get Postman Pat vibes whenever I see this episode Very, for some um, reason. Welsh architecture, I feel. Yes, yes. Which... And and, and that's important to note as well, because many Welsh villages, of course, are coal mining villages, Mm. 
So, and Percy's working near a coal mine, so, yeah. And I feel it's also important to note that the accident in this episode where the trucks ran away and they only stopped when they went up a hill, lost their momentum, and a workman put planks under their wheels to stop them from rolling back down, which is the supposed climax of the episode. Uh, was based on a real runaway that occurred in Garou Valley, Wales, whilst David Maidment was area manager there. Aha, uh-huh, it's another David Maidment story. Exactly. The climax of this story is very similar to the events that I saw on a railway, which I will leave unnamed. Um, as I was walking along one day, um, I saw a rake of carriages uh, that had their brakes not locked on and uh, Scott Block not placed down properly, race down the line for about a kilometre. And when the incline starts to raise again near the first bridge on the line, it would come back down again and it would go up again where the grade um, of the carriage sightings began. I, I, I feel that we should add for American listeners, a kilometre is around about uh, uh, 0.6 of a mile. Um, yes, that's and, correct. And what you're describing there, I would almost say is a skateboard ramp runaway. <laughs> that is very true. That yeah. is amazing. <laughs> I that is good story potential, but I'm more so amazed as to how that could have happened because the brakes wouldn't have been on properly originally. However, for them not to have rolled down right away as they were put there, an engine must have just put them there or something, or maybe someone had just undone the brakes. It, it it's hard for me to figure out how they did roll down, but. That, that's beside this story that we're reviewing. A surprise for Percy. Uh, some notes about this episode um, I have is... I love the road and rail chase, of course. Uh, what's interesting about it is that Bertie and Topham actually pass by what is a... looks like a disused railway line on, on their chase after the trucks. And Bertie is carrying the workmen along uh, to help stop the train when they eventually reach the hill. But if you look in the background, you can actually see that this is the line that leads to the station in Oliver's Find. Ah, there you go. Um, Another um, note I have about this episode, uh, apart from some of the wonderful dialogue, such as the temper temper, which I quote tons of the time, and um, the spins on the turntable between Toby and Percy, which I really want that to just be a thing now. Whenever the engines are bored, they just spin on the turntable whilst James watches meekly nearby. I love how disapproving Percy is of this comment, and it almost feels like it's hearkening back to those events from tenders and turntables. He probably overheard that story from one of the engines and uh, fears the same would probably happen to him. (laughs) (laughs) But um, as you mentioned, Parry, 
it has got some good things. It, it's got some great dialogue. It's got some great scenery. It's got a you know rather unique runaway. But for some reason that I'm unable to put a buffer on, it just falls flat. I think the part for me where it falls flat is the ending because... It's, it's so abrupt. It's, it is quite abrupt because it's trying to, you know, tell a moral, tell a message and trying to link it with an earlier conversation. It does just does it really poorly. Exactly. And... Like, like, I mean, I love this episode. However, the ending isn't satisfying enough. They seem no. to have forced a message there. Yeah, definitely. And not not only that, Percy seems rather violent with the trucks. Mm. He quote unquote punches them twice. Mm. Um, and Percy's driver is so rude to him as he's talking with Toby. His driver tells him to you know be quiet and hurry up. When Percy is getting water. Yeah, so it, I, th- I think he says, stop, stop gossiping, you two, or something like that. Yeah, we've got work to do when Percy's getting water. So he hasn't got work to do because he's getting water. Mm, like, it, it harks back to a conversation between Douglas and Edward back in series three of the show. It brings to mind a, a conversation Douglas had with Edward all the way back in Escape, the story from series three of the show, where mm. he yells at Edward to stop gossiping in the sun when there's work to be done. And Edward later admonishes Douglas and says, you know, Trevor and I are old friends. We're allowed to, like, chat occasionally, aren't we? Exactly. Mm. Uh, like, I mean, this episode has got some wonderful dialogue and some, you know, great character interactions. Percy and Bertie, I think this is one of the first times they've properly interacted. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yet, it just doesn't hold up to ex- its expectations, and I really have got nothing else to say about it. Well, Denim, have you got any more to say? Have you got any more to add to this rather down note? I can understand what you both mean by the abrupt ending. Um, I think with another rewrite or a script revision, it could have been uh, done a bit more gracefully. I can appreciate it for what it is because it feels like an ending of a Thomas story, but at the same time, it's kind of like, oh, yep, we're done. I think actually for context, we might play for our listeners now that very ending, so they can get an understanding of what we're talking about. Well, what did you think of that? Joked Percy. A good chase is always exciting. It certainly was a surprise, decided Percy. And you were right, Percy. A really useful engine should never be surprised by surprise. See, you guys are just like, huh, what? What, what are you saying? What? What? Yeah. Credits roll. It's like, oh, OK, well, that was... I know it's not what happens, but it almost feels like the music uh, for the ending credits would just cut off straight in between this dialogue. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a lovely day on... So da, 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 da. <laughs> but, like, um, we, well, we've covered the ending. Shall we just give our rankings? Oh, we may as well. Um, I think, despite all this story's faults. I do enjoy it. It's definitely top tier series five. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10. Look, the visuals are nice. Everything else. Two. Ooh, Connor. Four. Ooh. 
Because the thing is, is I love the visuals of this episode, and mm. I love the, you know, the, it, it's got some good dialogue, but it's it's bringing up too many questions. It hasn't got a satisfying ending, and well, what's the point of telling a story if the story isn't good? Mm. <laughs> we could say that about several stories we've disagreed with in the past, but we won't go into that right now. Um, I, I will say again, though, it is worth watching the story just for the mm. singing trucks. The singing trucks are absolutely what make this story special. Oh, yeah. But once you're done with that and you've made your own decisions as to what your own rankings are, you can then go watch the next episode, which we are going to be reviewing. And that is Denim. It's none other than make someone happy. And in the clip that we're going to show, uh, we learn that Mrs. Kindly isn't doing too well, and the Fat Controller ought to change that to make her happy. Meanwhile, James was collecting quarry trucks from the yard. Just here, I'm just here, he grumbled. Then he saw his friend, Mrs. Kindly. She looks miserable. What's the matter? asked James's driver. My sister has rung to tell me she can't come to stay with me. I was so looking forward to her visit. The fat controller soon heard the sad news. We must cheer her up. Send Harold the helicopter to pick her up immediately. A few minutes later, there was a surprise for Mrs Kindly. All present and correct, called Harold. I'm here on a flying visit. Hurry aboard, Mrs Kindly, and fly the sky with me. Compliments of the Fat Controller. Ooh, how lovely. Harold's made my red paint juicier than ever, muttered James, but he was happy for Mrs Kindly. Amusing that mm. Sir Topham Hat would pull out all the stops to ensure that Mrs Kindly is having a good day. Yes, which is very sweet. Um, but but I feel in order to greater amplify all the stops here, we need to explain the whole story. So, make someone happy. James is over the top vain and selfish. He literally goes, the only thing I can think about is being important. <laughs> which is absolutely amazing. If a little over the top. Speaking of tops, there is Harry Topper's Fair being promoted by Tiger Moth. And the engines are talking about it happening and oh, how joyous and happy. And then we have the clip that we just heard. James working in the yard. And Miss Kylie comes along whose sister is unable to visit and she's so sad. So... The Fat Controller sends Harold to pick her up, give her a sky-high view of the island. And then after that, we cut back to the fair, uh, but specifically at the docks, where Cranky is playing Lucky Dip, unloading the items, where we then see James again, who needs to go pick up Miss Kindly. There, Mrs. Kindly is taken on a private train around the island along her favourite coastal route. And then... The episode ends where the fair is all set up. Fag Controller has given Ms. Kindly the privilege to open the fair. And then James goes, You're right, Thomas. It is good to 
make someone happy for once. And the end sequence uh, features a rather demonic-looking clown laughing. Yeah, there's about 30 seconds of sideshow circus B-roll. Yes, and some of the worst models of Sir Topham Hatt. Oh, yeah, that... But, but, His legs are so peculiar, it looks like he's given birth. He's, um... Yes, I, I was hoping that somebody else would bring that up, because the way <laughs> he sits on the merry-go-round, and the, the or the horse on the carousel, it's, is what other people would call it, is just... Yes. It's, it's so very strange. It is um, inhuman, I would say. Um, um, the, the shape his body has made. And I think this is a good time to bring up the fact that as much as I love Series 5, this is perhaps the only story that I do not enjoy. Every time I'm watching it on DVD, I just skip it because it's just... Nothing happens. Mm. What's going on here? Which is strange because you see so much occur and happen in one episode and it all kind of eventuates to one kind of unwielding moment. Yeah, which... That's one thing about this episode. There are plenty of wonderful unexpected character interactions yeah there's like yeah little niceties of course it's the first time percy and oliver are interacting with each other ever i don't think that ever happened in the railway series and then we also have percy oliver cranky and james interacting Mm -hmm. then you add ms kindly to the mix and then you have got direct Ms. Kindly, Sir Topham, Ms. Kindly, James, James, Harold. Tons of wonderful interconnected stories there. Mm, but- and also, you, you have Donald's only appearance in Series 5, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, in a half-second shot. Yes. <laughs> but as, as we say that, this episode has got some beautiful shots in it. Like, especially the opening shots at the sea. We mix in some season four engines, lots of creeks and running water. Then we have got some beautiful shots from up above Sodor. Got some wonderful details where Harold has landed. And there's just dust casually moving by him from his propellers. And then you've got the fun fair <laughs> all lit up at night where it just looks so magical you could say at the fun fair but I, I i do see where you're coming from but what i feel this episode really excels in is its dialogue a- and because in the first scene we have got some classic james dialogue we just can't help but laugh at him he mentions percy and oliver just offhand and if you just heard that in any other episode, it would just sound like they were naming engines. But then in the very next scene, Percy and Oliver appeared together talking about Tiger Moth, another mm, it character. It was a Chekhov's gun. Very clever. Exactly. Which they, you know, Tiger Moth, uh, promoting Harry Topper's fair, which, as similar as Harry Topper is to... Topham Hat or Topham mm. Circus. <clears throat> According to Rob Gorgulias, Harry Topper is the owner of Tiger Moth. Mm-hmm. Which brings up the question on is Harry Topper the controller that Sir Topham Hat was referring to in Sir Topham Hat's holiday? It is entirely possible. 
Mm. I can imagine Harry Topper would be some kind of eccentric playing collector or restorer, and he wants to show off his collection to the public to see. Mm, like, like maybe he started with airships, and then he needed stuff to be happening on and around the airships to bring more people in, and that's where the fair came from. Continuing on, you've got some beautiful dialogue from James building on the idea of him being selfish, and even just... Wonderful thing where he's dusty from the trucks. Harold lands, and then you just see him get so much dustier. And you just see the look of distress on James's face over it. And then you've got all of Miss Kindly's adventures happening. Again, Cranky being involved with Oliver, which I would never pick as some kind of connection. And some wonderful, joyous conversation from Cranky as he mentions, I'm playing Lucky Dip. You've got the return of Tidmouth Bay or the castle seen in Toby's Discovery, which has now been built up as a proper station. But this episode does fail on a few fronts, I'd say. One thing is that, again, much like a surprise for Percy, it seems like it has got a forced moral on how James never really gets punished for his selfishness. It's not even regarded that much. He just suddenly is happier because he's got an important job, but at the same time he's making Ms. Kindly happy. So he's also getting rewarded for just being a better person. Which brings up maybe the idea in the change of the show's ideologies. Because in the early Railway series stories, Engine did something wrong, they got punished. But here, it is reverse, where if they do something right, they get rewarded. Um, <laughs> We've really got nothing more to add to that. <laughs> yeah, but um, there are a few more notes about this episode. Trivial facts. Uh, the carousel plays a variation of the original theme, the episode title, Make Someone Happy, is a song title from the musical Do Re Mi. And Do Re Mi itself comes from Sound of Music. Um, mm-hmm. But sadly, this is the last time Tiger Moth is referred to by name. It is the last appearance of Tidmouth Holt. It is the last appearance of Kirk Ronan. And it is the last episode where Ms. Kindly speaks. And it is also the last story for a while to feature Farquhar Yards. Exactly. Which, why is James a mainline engineer on a branch line yard? Because Percy and Oliver are by the sea. But, what? No, 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 that's what I'm saying. Because if Percy and Oliver are at the seaside, it means that Percy can't be doing the shunting at Farquhar, so James has to do Percy's work at Farquhar. But we know that from Mavis and Toby's tightrope, Mavis is allowed to go down to Farquhar Yards and shunt in the yard. Oh, whatever. Mavis was busy. Maybe. Yes. Um, <sighs> but I, w- w- one thing I, I did when watching these episodes is my um, my partner want to watch them with me. And she brought up a very interesting point on how the Fat Controller 
um, has pulled out all the stops for Ms. Kindly. And she was furious at that because, you know, as a business, a railway engine business, he is ordering private helicopters and private trains and taking an engine just to take someone in a private coach to a single location. He, he's wasting so much on your money on Ms. Kindly. Did you, exp- did you explain to your better half, Connor, why Mrs. Kindly is so special and why the fact Controller was giving her the VIP treatment? Oh, oh yes, I mentioned how Ms. Kindly is a close friend of the railway and she helped save one engine on one branch line from one landslide and then everything oh. else the railway has done for her. And then her final theory was that either Sir Topham is bribing her for money or love. (laughs) And, 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 I mean, all we know of Mrs. Kindly's life is that she has a daughter, and she did have a husband, which was a special mysterious visitor that appeared in one magazine story. Uh, hold on, he's in the original book too. He's in the, in the original story, Mrs. Kindly's Christmas, which was in Toby the Tram Engine. He makes an appearance there as well. Is he mentioned by name? Oh, uh, yeah, his name's Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, but like, I mean, he, he does sort of make an appearance, I guess, but... He really isn't as prominent a figure as Ms. Kindly. So, I really... And, and, and this has now got me thinking. Why is Sir Topham spending so much money on Ms. Kindly? Because she's obviously some kind of uh, wealthy baroness, we could say, on Sodor. Because she owns a wonderful cottage by a railway line. And she certainly has got enough money for a big, you know, fabulous wedding to occur by the sea. You you make her sound so majestic, Connor, but living beside a railway line is not as wonderful as many people make it out to be. I've lived by a railway line for a long time, okay? But if it's on the magical island of Sodor, I reckon it's just that tiny bit better. No, well, well, hold on. You've, the steam trains are very loud. They make a lot of noise. They produce a lot yes. of smoke. A lot and she of she waves to them each time. She obviously enjoys it. My main point is, why? Why is the Fat Controller treating her so nicely? And Mrs. Kindly saved two of his engines from certain doom. The certain doom of a landslide. Yeah, you got no response to that. I wouldn't do you? call it certain doom because we've seen engines run into landslides before. They didn't but, exactly get stuck in a landslide. But this was a very serious landslide, and it could have cost the Fat Controller hundreds of thousands of pounds to have his engines replaced. Like, like, like I mean, I'm just saying, in Mrs. Kindly's Christmas, okay, Toby the Tram Engine, as. Good as, you know, stopping that landslide was, 
he he's only actually she's only actually saving Thomas, I believe. She saved Toby too. He uses the branch line as well. Well, yes, but at the time it was Thomas going there. <sighs> and if Thomas had the accident, news will have gone back to Toby to not crash into Thomas. Uh, okay, so let's discount the idea then that Sir Topham is using this occasion to reward Mrs. Kindly. How about this for a theory, for a head cannon, if you will? <laughs> yeah, okay, you can run your head cannon by, but I, I, I do have one more point to make on this head cannon. Well, okay, here we go. Here's my thought. Publicity. This is all good publicity. If the Fat Controller takes an older lady who didn't get to see her sister on this wonderful trip around the island, it will reflect well on the railway. It will ref- it will be good for morale on the island. You know, it might even be a newspaper report. It might even inspire a story for a television series. Who knows? Ooh, maybe. But, mm. okay... Uh, it's pu- an episode of a show. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry, Denno. I'm saving up some anger for you. Now the thing is, okay, he could be trying to reward her for saving it, but there was Mrs. Kindly's Christmas, then there was Thomas's Christmas party, and then there was the wedding happy ever after. And and now there's this, okay? He's rewarded her four times for saving one engine. When, in Happy Ever After, he was more so putting Thomas in danger by turning him into a moving fireball. So, like, I mean, I'm just saying, is the gift to Ms. Kindly, here is the engine that you've saved into a burning pile of metal. Like, I mean, it, it's really... But, okay... Publicity is a two-way street, okay? On how what maybe good publicity for Sir Topham could easily be turned into bad publicity by his rivals, especially those on the other railway, that are scrapping steam engines and proclaiming that he is wasting money. And... He's obviously going senile in his old age due to wasting so much money and buying all these engines that he could very easily be a potential threat to himself and subsequently the island due to his horrible behaviour. Are you guys done yet? Okay, I think what Denim's saying is we're overthinking this and we should probably get into the ratings about now. Okay, ratings. I... Zero. What? (laughs) What? It's just a hot mess. Like, there's a lot of visually nice things, but, like, it just doesn't do anything for me. There is no gain in this episode. (laughs) <laughs> but the music and, 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 and the dialogue. Yeah, but you can hear the music and dialogue in other episodes. Okay, Connor, uh, what are you giving it? Nine. What, nine? I'm, I'm giving it a nine. Oh, wow. Oh. Well, <laughs> well um, I have to say this. I was all set to give this story a really, really low score, but having... Had the discussions we're having now, um, I've actually come to appreciate it a little bit more, so I'm going to give it a score of 3 out of 10. 
What? What? You were going to give it a lower score than three? <laughs> yes, I was. That gives it an average of 4.6. Ah, uh, so, um, what, what I don't understand, though, is, Connor, you were ranting and raving and you still gave it a really high score. Yes. Yes, because it's a wonderful episode. And as much as, as I was ranting and raving, I feel that potential mystery on what are the potential reasons that Sir Topham is spending so much money on a dear old lady is just so much more entertaining. It ought- it's Thomas the Tank Engine, not the bold and the beautiful. <laughs> on that note, let's move along to our final story that we're going to be covering on this episode of the podcast before, of course, we have our huge big interview. And that is... Busy going backwards. The trucks were cross with Toad. Who's he to start complaining? He's lucky to be able to look after us. Let's teach him a lesson. trucks decided to carry out their plan when they reached Gordon's Hill. When they were nearly at the top, they played their tricks. Ready, steady, go, said the trucks, and they jerked at a coupling which broke. We're making your wish come true, Toad. Toad's wish is coming true, but what is that wish? Well... He has spent much of his life going backwards because he is a brake fan at the back of a train that looks out as the world moves away from him. And the trucks are now paying him out for not being so grateful to them. And Mm. now they're pushing him down onwards and onwards, down a hill faster and faster, where he avoids multiple crashes, multiple accidents, multiple splintery, splintery deaths. Mm. Until he becomes a true toad. What a wonderful gift. Uh, it, there are so many beautiful scenes. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, so many beautiful interactions as well. At the beginning, we've got Toad talking to Oliver and Gordon being pompous as usual in the background, going, oh, why would you want to do that? And, uh, of course, we've got the trucks talking to Toad, and then we've mm. got um, Toad almost... No, he does cross paths with all the mainline engines. and, and The big and, three? Yes, and of course, in the little clip we just played there, you heard a little bit of um, the William Tell Overture, which then feeds into the Runaway theme, and it's just brilliant. I mean, the music works so well in this particular instance. Absolutely, and we'll hear a little bit more about the theme later in our interview. This mm. episode, I feel is so well done, and a lot of it is a runaway. And I feel that this episode is a runaway done right. But the reason why... But the reason that I feel it has got that done right is because there's a character in the runaway that we're rooting for. That's it, as well. We're sympathetic to Toad and his plight. And I think the other thing which really uh, pulls you into this story is that the music and the editing and everything else, it really gives you this sense that, you know, it's exciting and yet perilous. Absolutely. Now, Denim, you've been rather quiet about this episode so far. No, I don't think that's because uh, 
I agree with everything that you're both saying. There's so much to eat up in this episode. Mm. Um, and it's amazing to have a character like Toad who's getting this limelight. Um, and there's so much going for what's going on. There's a huge impact. Uh, you're with the whole story and you feel an absolute sense of chaos and uh, shock value for everybody involved in the plot as well. And, Denim, I've got a special moment in this episode for you. Because as Toad is running away, he is on a perilous course towards Gordon, who's waiting by a water tower. And someone comes along to Toad's rescue. That's right. It's a signalman boy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is none other than the prime villain of the show, the Signalman. <laughs> he's redeemed himself at long last. I wouldn't say he's he's done his job once. <laughs> okay. And this is because he's probably not sleeping. This accident is happening probably at the prime time of the morning. He's perked up with his coffee. He's ready to go. He's alert. Then he sees a runaway train and it's like, oh, time to go to work. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. No, he's just had his coffee. Okay. He just woke up from his morning nap. He's had his coffee. Okay. And now he's finally able to do some work, which is supposed to be the quiet time of day because, as we see, the express engine's having a break. So he doesn't Mm. really need to be working on that much, but there's actually a runaway. And he does his job for once. Um, And then after that, everyone else that changes the points for Toad are shunters, switches, and workers, apart from a signalman. But, but... A signalman did do their job. See, we can be really useful too. Yes, well done, Mr. Signalman. And you bring up an important point, Connor, because as with all of Series 5 of Thomas and Friends, it is always in acknowledgement of the human element of Sodor. Mm. We hear about the guard jumping clear of the brake van... Uh, there's the signalman changing the points, a quick-thinking shunter moving Toad onto another line. We've got workmen working on the bridge. Because in later series of the show, it was if, it was as if the engines were autonomous, they're acting on their own accord. Mm. And as we know from Reverend Audrey's stories, as we know from the earlier TV stories, that's not the case. Uh, what What I feel really aids in this episode, because it isn't dialogue heavy. In fact, the dialogue at the start with Oliver, Toad and Gordon seems rather jarring at times as it no, jumps I, I will them. agree with that. I mean, it's mm. edited rather abruptly so as it can rush us through to like the, 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 the runaway, conflict. yeah. yeah. It, it, it still does a great job on even having you know, a sentence of narration every 20 seconds. It mm. still tells a marvellous story. It's a bit like a point-of-view train-spotting video. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, And and there are wonderful shots. The opening shot where we move down from uh, Wellsworth Station Bridge to underneath it as all the engines going by. We've Mm. got moving shots. We've got absolutely hilarious shots. Um, especially as, you know, Toad is enjoying himself. He sees a crossing, he closes his eyes, 
Oh, that editing there is absolutely flawless. Exactly. And the comedy in this episode as well, because we see him shunted into Crosby's siding, where he goes, ah, buffers, that'll stop me. And we just see him veer away from it. It's expectation versus reality, am I right? Oh, no, I'm back on the main line. It's just fabulously done. Like, the music, the rendition of William Tell Overture finale by Giochano Rossini, uh, used mm. during The Runaway, it, it is, is what carries, I feel, this. Because there is no other music, I feel, that is so elaborate, over-the-top, and almost gallopy, I feel, would be the word to describe it. It, it is amazing. Two notes, though. Um... Mm-hmm. What a useless guard! <laughs> like, like uh, the... in all in all honesty, I think he, I, <laughs> I, I think he made the right decision though, because he would have ended the journey either, you know, disintegrating yeah. with the buffers, or, or putting being, the break, yeah. or being in a muddy pond, or or hear me out, putting on the brakes. <sighs> I mean, it sounds good in theory, but in reality, that's another story. Sigma know about this. Like, 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 I mean, that is the main job of an engine, to put on the brakes. Well, not an engine, a guard. Mm. Um, but there, there is um, uh, another note, though. Um, mm-hmm. At the end, after Toad's traumatic experience, and he's been dunked in a rather gross-looking muddy pond in a Mm -hmm. sunken siding. Oliver's quite mean to Toad. Like, like he makes a light-hearted comment going, Ah, a pond's the only place for a Toad. Wink, acknowledging the weird name. It's banter. It's just fun banter. They're good friends. They're okay, okay. Well, when Oliver comes to the final place that Toad has crashed uh, with the trucks, um... You can't really assume that Oliver is uh, saying what he says. Uh, A pond is the only place for a toad, I suppose, uh, to toad. It seems too hush. It almost sounds like he's saying it to his engine crew. Yes. um, Quite jokingly. And they've got that uh, long-term relationship, so it feels like they know each other for a long period of time and they can talk like that as well. Mm. I think so, yeah. That's fair. Um, Some interesting facts about this episode. Uh, Toby's chassis uh, was used to push the runaway train. You can actually see it in the shot where Toad is going through Crosby Station and just misses the buffers because you can just see Toby's chassis at the end of the train. Um, This is also the last appearance of Crosby Station in the show. Um, And much like a surprise for Percy, this is another David Maidment story. Mm-hmm. Um, which is based on multiple hair-raising runaway trains that occurred in the Tundu Valleys whilst David Mainment was the area manager. I, I mean no disrespect to David Mainment, but he's been the area manager or the, the guard or conductor for a lot of the inspiration in these stories where a lot of accidents have occurred. Mm. Now, I I don't know whether David Maimant has been the real-life signalman that we mock, or whether he has just got the worst possible luck for a railway. 
I think it's just bad luck. It's just bad luck. Or maybe it was fate. Maybe had he not have gone to that railway, he wouldn't have become the story supervisor for Thomas and Friends. You need to have a um, history of, you know, absolutely terrifying railway events in order to be a part of the uh, show. Absolutely. Well, um, what rating should we give this episode? Because I've got nothing else to say about it, unless you guys have. Oh, well, I do have one more thing to say. Uh, I'm turning into Connor now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the virus the is pe- spreading. One of the most peculiar shots in the story is when Oliver's chasing through... Cha- or not chasing. Uh, flying through Wellsworth Station chasing after toad and in the opposite direction edward is heading with the breakdown train mm. I, I know it's just b-roll footage but it just always perplexed me it's like why is edward heading in the opposite direction with the breakdown train when he should probably be chasing after oliver perhaps another accident has happened on the other side of the island that edward is going to yeah a lot That's of accidents true. happen on sodor um I, there is another possible theory because Edward may not have seen Oliver because, as we know, Wellsworth is a junction station for the Suttery Branch Line and the Main Line. Oh, it so, is. So, it, um, yeah, I know what you're saying. That Edward could be coming up from Brendam, but that brings another problem because the Brendam Branch Line, right? It heads um, in, south. Yeah, it heads south, but it also heads off away from. Gordon's Hill. So when you're coming north back up Brendan Branch Line, you're actually heading back towards Knapford and Tidmouth and those areas, whereas Gordon's Hill runs in the opposite direction. So what Edward's actually doing is heading up Gordon's Hill where the accident originated. True, but maybe he isn't heading towards the accident. But because, as we see near the end of the episode... Toad passes some workers working on a bridge and they have got breakdown cranes with them there as well for construction. Okay. Well, anyhow, I just thought that that was an interesting little tidbit that oh, I wanted to share. No, no, but, no, no. Um, it's a very good point. I, that I'm that i just trying to make sense of it as well as you. <laughs> um, uh, so, ratings, I'm going to start off and say 10. I, I I love this episode. It has got fantastic music. It's wonderful shots, wonderful narration. The only complaint is the bit of hasty dialogue editing at the start, but that doesn't really detract from it. So, yeah, 10. Okay, Denim, I want to hear your score first. Yeah, as Connor's already said, this is a stellar story. There's so much happening um even though i i i I don't know why you don't like that bit of dialogue at the start connor i think um that there's something really going for that little bit there even though it's very quick fire it's um juicy stuff but the real thrill of the chase is here you really feel for toad in everything that's happening and you engage with the story this is um, Thomas at its best. This is series five at its best. And I remember sitting down watching this story um, as a kid when I was on TV for the first time. And it really echoed to me of how big of a story it was. So for that reason, 
it's also a 10 from me. You do both make excellent points. I'm going to echo your sentiments. I want to add, though, this was one of those stories when I revisited the show years and years later, in my adult years, I wasn't sure I'd seen it growing up, but watching the episode back, I said to myself, hold on, I do remember many of these scenes. I must have seen this as a kid on TV, and it turns out I had. (laughs) And that speaks to just how memorable this story is. You know, it really does stick with you, even on repeat viewings, even as an adult. It's just got so many great things going for it, so... It's another 10. We've got a perfect Douglas. Oh! That's a happy feeling. Yes, and I believe this is the first time that's happened since the Flying Kiffer, isn't it? Uh, The first time that the three of us have. However, Mm. uh, you need to remember back uh, when we had Headmaster Hastings on. We also all scored 10 for Put Upon Percy. Oh, we which, too. Was, which was technically a 40 out of 40 instead of the 30 out of 30 that we just gave it. But And I think that's a true testament to how great uh, Series 5 is and how much it's meant to us as fans as well. Yeah. Yeah. But Will it be uh, the last? Only time will tell. Mm. Ooh. But um, I'm afraid that brings us to the end of the reviewing of this episode. We're going to jump to our interview with Mike O'Donnell next, but before that, we're going to have a very, very wonderful little musical interlude. Um, Denim, what is it? Yeah, this is a very special musical interlude. Uh, This is done by the fantastical Sutherland's team, who did a wonderful little medley for the 70th anniversary of Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends in the Railway series, which is aptly called RWS 70 Years. So please stick around for the interview later on. Enjoy this little piece of music, and we'll be back soon.
Sudri and Steam there providing this week's musical interlude on the Right on Track podcast, originally released as part of the 70th anniversary of the Railway series, but we thought we'd play it again because this year, of course, it's the 75th anniversary. So, And it's such a nice, wonderful music thing. A beautiful orchestration, I have to say. But now it's time for what is quite possibly the highlight of not just this episode, but the entirety of Season 5 of Right on Track. We have an interview with a man who has shaped our childhoods and also, more importantly, shaped the musical direction of Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends. He got his start all the way back in the early 1980s with Junior Campbell and he composed the entire series right up until the end of Series 7 in 2003. It is an honour and a privilege to have in our presence now Mike O'Donnell, the composer of the famous Thomas the Tank Engine theme and of course the composer of the first seven series of the show. Well, it's lovely to be asked to be on the Right on Thomas podcast. (laughs) Yes, we're very happy to have you here. Now, we wanted to start, Mike, by asking you how is it that you came to be a professional musician? Where did your love of music originate? Okay, well, um, back in Liverpool in 1960-61, all we had was skiffle music, and no one had any money, so you could buy a cheap guitar and knock something out. And I was a big fan of Lonnie Donegan. I don't know if you guys ever heard of Lonnie Donegan, but he was a British skiffler. So you could buy his records and then learn the three chords that were on it and go from there. And that's really what started me off. And then, of course, we didn't have any radio stations. They, all we were listening to was a thing called Radio Luxembourg, obviously transmitting from Luxembourg on a very weak signal. A little bit later, we got Radio Caroline, you know, the pirate ship radio stations, and they'd play all the great stuff. Yeah. So really, that's how it started. And of course, then along came the Beatles, and that was it. Hang on to something, and let's go for a ride. So it was. It really got to me. And, and as I said, in Liverpool at the time, you were either into football, because we had two football teams, well, still do, or music. That was all there was, as far as I was concerned. And I, I went for the for the music side of it. So I just, just used to learn songs by playing along to the records. And of course, you're in great company having come from Liverpool because the narrator of the first two seasons hails from the same part of the world. Absolutely. Although he, to be fair, he was 10 years older than me. We didn't kind of hang around then because I was only 10. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I never saw the Beatles when they were down the cabin club before they cracked it. I was too young, but I got to see them in about 65, I think. Uh, when they, they were on tour with the uh, Moody Blues and all the rest of it. Big, big, you know, Dave Clark, Moody Blues, all kinds of people on one show. It's fantastic. Oh, well, I tell you, like, the music scene in Britain, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, everyone remembers the Beatles, but, of course, you mentioned there the Moody Blues, Dave Clark. We had the Hollies as well coming from up north. So, absolutely. Yeah, ab- yeah, it was an absolutely amazing time to, you know, be growing up. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, there was so much creativity going on because it hadn't been done before. So you weren't worried about, well, you were kind of copying Elvis and Bill Haley and all the great American guys, but, you know, not in England. And a lot of people had never heard of Elvis. Well, they'd heard of him, but they, you know, you couldn't listen to his music. So it was a, 
it was make it up as you go along, which I think really that's what um, the Beatles did. Now, prior to composing for Thomas and Friends, uh, what other work did you do? Do you mean in connection with music you're talking about? Not Yes, in music. Not down at the fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, actually, I was a shipping clerk in Liverpool when I left school because the Mersey at that time hadn't silted up. So there was a lot of big ships coming in and out. It was an interesting time, but I couldn't wait to get out of it. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I used to do a lot of... I was in a few bands and we had some singles released. None of them made any hits out of them. So I kind of drifted into doing jingles, you know, um, jingles for advertising products and things like that. Mm, yeah. I was living around the corner from Junior at the time, Junior Campbell. So we started working together on, um, as I say, jingles and also some production work, a bit of songwriting and all the rest of it. That's what I was doing prior to Thomas. And then along came Thomas. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm interested to hear, um, from a musical point of view, uh, how did your earlier work and experiences influence the work that you both did on Thomas? Well, I have to be honest, it didn't really. I mean, the original Thomas theme, I based it on Mean Mr. Mustard by the Beatles. I just thought because because I knew Ringo was narrating it, and I thought, well, maybe he'll at some point down the line sing it or, or sing a version of it. Uh, it never happened, but um, so I based the idea for the theme on on the feel of uh, Mean Mr. Mustard. And apart from that, there wasn't really any um, any major theft going on from the Beatles. Um, <laughs> although we did steal a bit from Mozart and all the rest of it, but you know that, that's just for the from mainly for the incidental, I think. Mm. Actually, in the episode we covered today on the podcast, Mike, we did talk about the runaway theme from Toad Stands By, and I think you did a bit of William Tell on that one. There were also some Mozart influences there. So do you have any particular memory of um, composing that piece of work? Uh, that was actually done in the studio, kind of on the fly. What would happen, I, I might be jumping ahead here, but we, if there was a theme to write or a number of themes to write, which in the beginning there was because there was nothing there at the time, we'd pretty much break the back of it at home and then get together in the studio and work on it. That's how we did it, except for certain things, one of them being the runaway trucks theme, because that was a big piece of incidental music, really. You know, we had to have music from A to Z uh, to fit in with the film. So we had the runaway train theme. You know, that thing. And then um, mm, yeah. for some reason yeah. or other, I, can't, I mean, I asked, I'll be honest, I don't remember the actual episode, but there must have been some reason why we put the William Tell Overture in there. I'm not sure why, but um, it seemed to make sense at the time. Now, Mike, I recall on your interview, I think it was with Sodor Island Forums, that you were actually, you found out about work on the show through a mutual friend. Is that right? At the time, Ringo had his studio at Tittenhurst Park out in Ascot. He asked me to run it for him because he was going to go out the country. So I thought, well, that's pretty good because I can use the studio as for my own stuff, which was the jingles and all the rest of it. So, um, and when he came back into the country, we kind of shut the studio down, obviously, because he was living there. And I learned that he was going to speak to Britt Alcock and David Mitten uh, about narrating the series for Thomas. And that would have been, what, 1981 or 82, something like that. I found out from Clearwater, which was David Mitten's office, Britt Allcross phone number, and I just gave her a call and I said, look, have you sorted the theme out? And she said, not yet, although we're, we're pitching stuff out. So would you mind if 
I pitch a couple of ideas and she said, absolutely not. And that was it. And they say the rest is history. Were there any particular genres or musicians that particularly influenced the themes that you composed for the series? Um, no, you could kind of break it up into two. There was a more classical approach like Henry and Gordon. And then there was the Chop Chop approach, which was Thomas and Percy. And do you know what I mean? We tried to bridge the gap somehow. That, that was the plan. And it seemed to work out all right. I mean, we branched out to, with James with a jazzy version and, and all the rest of it. But I don't know how you describe Thomas stuff. We used to just call it Chop Chop music because we always had the shakers and the bass drum and all the rest of it as the, as the starter, you know, displaying the steam engine side to it. But then when we came to do Henry and Gordon, we kind of tried to move away from that a bit. And then it went on from there, really. We just looked at the um, scripts or the visuals decided what kind of theme the visuals look like it should be, if you know what I mean. So more often you'd be composing the music after a lot of the episode was filmed. Yes, we did it always on the back end of it. Except for the song, no, we did the songs as well. Um, the first, the demo tape that we put in had three, three possibilities. There was one became the Thomas theme. One became Toby's theme, and one became Edward's theme. It's just that we don't like wasting stuff. That's how those happened. After that, we'd look at the episode. It had guide narration on it, and it was a rough cut. And we decided, well, we want Percy to sound like this. So we just went away and wrote that. And then we popped it into the um, actual episode. But a lot of it was done uh, to film. We'd get the uh, VHSs from Brittlecroft's office, and we'd just crack on and, and write the music to it. That's marvellous. But in that episode, if we needed another theme, like Daisy's theme, then we'd kind of write it on the fly, unless someone had an idea already in the can for it. We didn't have a lot of time, to tell the truth. And when there's 26 episodes to do and you've got X amount of weeks to do it before you get paid, we'd crack on, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's a very short amount of time. I love the description that you coined of calling the Thomas music Chuff Chuff music because when I think of particular ditties or themes for characters, like you hear Bertie's theme and it sounds like bus music or you hear Terence's theme and it sounds like tractor music, it has those, I guess, particular sounds that you associate with those machines, which I think is really beautiful. Bertie's theme doesn't have any Chuff Chuff in it because he's a bus. But he had the um, the klaxon horn because he was a 1930s bus, I suppose. So you wouldn't have any chop chop in that. But a thing like Trevor, you wouldn't have chop chop. But you'd have quirky little um, rhythm section going on, which is supposed to be because um, he was on the well, what was he? He was a diesel uh, traction engine. A traction, brilliant. You've seen these episodes, haven't you? Traction engine, yeah. Tra- Yes, It's been a while for me, I'm going from memory. Yeah, you know what I mean? You compose the music to suit the character or to suit the character's looks. That's what we thought we were doing. Mm, Definitely. It's such a cliche question to ask, but it always has a really novel answer. And I'm interested in your insight, but what was your um, fondest memory on your time working on um, Thomas the Tank Engine? To be honest with you, the... When we were writing the music for the series, it was very, very uh, intense work because we were on a tight schedule and a tight budget. So that, it was more like a factory in those that time. What I really loved was when we were with the 10 dubs, you know, where they put it all together. Then it really, because that's the first time we'd ever heard it. 
because don't forget in when the early days uh, we didn't have we weren't synced up to picture we literally had um quarter inch tape and a little chinograph mark and press the button there and it should sort of run vaguely in time with the video you know and then all this music was given to i think it was mike dixon at the time was the editor and he'd piece it all together and and make up the m and e and um so it wasn't until we got to the dub stage that we actually heard it all put together uh, and it was fantastic really enjoyed that good fun except we always moaned that the music was too quiet but i mean they were always right that it wasn't so you learn by your mistakes <laughs> were there any particular pieces of music uh that you were both proud of producing no, I mean they were all so different. There was some. I mean there was some that were based on um, Oliver's Escape. I remember somebody asked me this the other week, and I had a look at it. And um, there was a big sequence where Oliver escapes. You'll know this. Oliver escapes from um, the scrapyard or whatever it was, and we based it on the on the Great Escape music. You know the film. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And. Yes. Um, so we we had a bit of that in it with a bit of tension, and then we put Oliver's theme in there, and we joined it all up, and it sounded really good. And that to to the picture that turned out really well, I thought. And uh, yeah, there's loads of them really, and they're all so different, you know. I mean, the songs, you know, are, are different again. They're a different uh, way of doing stuff. You know, the songs were um, written to a specific brief on the characters or the motive for what they're doing or whatever. And there was no, we didn't do it to visual, so we were just left to our own devices on that. So that was a different style again. I'm very glad, Mike, that you brought up uh, the music from Oliver's Escape, because we too noticed it was sort of ripping off The Great Escape when we covered it a few episodes back. Just in case there's any, just in case there's any lawyers hanging around, I, I, didn't, say, <laughs> I didn't say ripping it off, I said we sort of referred to it, that's the legal term. Inspired uh-huh. by... <laughs> Mm, yes, yes. <laughs> my love. Yes. <laughs> well, we've also noticed here on the Right on Track podcast, Mike, that uh, Daisy's theme sort of takes inspiration from the theme of Corella Deville, and I'm wondering whether that was intentional. Daisy's theme, Daisy um, with the pink buffers. That Daisy. So, so Daisy, the diesel rail car, who was introduced in series two of the show. Yeah. What happened there was Dave Mitten, who was a great character. He showed us some of the um, rushes of it. And I don't know if you guys did it or if anyone had ever noticed, but he, he gave her pink buffers because uh, she was kind of like a hooker, we always thought. <laughs> you know, you say that when we first spoke about Daisy's theme, we called it, it's like Daisy stripper music, isn't it? And you mentioning that it's a bit like a hooker just perfectly encapsulates the theme. <laughs> It was based on the stripper music to go along with David's pink buffers, which no one ever picked up on. I'm re- I was thinking they're not going to have this; they're going to change it, especially in America. But they never did. And um, and of course, with the stripper music, you know, I mean, it's like Diesel, the other Diesel, the black Diesel. You know, yes, he was yes. very much um, Arabic music. It's all about the oil. And uh, I thought we wouldn't get away with that one either, but uh, we we managed 
to get that done. But it was fun to do. That's a different variation. It was moving away from the original Thomas because you needed to. Different types of engines. And we just thought the stripper music was great. I mean, a five-year-old's not going to know what the stripper music's all about. No, no, no. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what we did for those two. And, uh, I mean, da- Daisy wasn't in it very often back in those days. I think she was only in it once or twice. And then, of course, with the new Thomas, all these themes have been dropped anyway. So uh, it's consigned to the history books. Sadly, yes. Now, Mike, when we tell our friends and family what the three of us do so that we do a Thomas the Tank Engine podcast, we often get a range of reactions. So there are some people who laugh at us, some people who are genuinely astonished, some people are confused. (laughs) Confused. (laughs) Yes, confused. They really are. And I'm curious to know, Mike, when you tell people that you are the composer of Thomas the Tank Engine, what kind of reactions do you get, particularly from family members? I mean, it was a long time ago now. I tend not to say anything, but if we're in a bunch of people or somebody finds out, you know, did you do the original? They're quite, I'm not starstruck's the wrong word, but all these people grew up with it. And of course, they're five-year-olds. Well, I mean, I've got a 40-year-old son, so his five-year-old wouldn't remember the original Thomas stuff. But it's quite amazing how many people of 40, 50, 60 and their kids remember it. It was a big deal for them. And um, no, I mean, everyone's quite impressed, really. Um, It's just it was such a big deal. I mean, it wasn't when we first wrote it because we didn't really think it was going to go very far. Well, you didn't, though, did you? You know, it's one of those things. No, no. And, and it really caught on. I mean, I think Britt Allcroft made some amazing decisions. You know, getting Ringo involved was genius because I, I knew, mm-hmm. well, everyone knew that Ringo would promote it because um, the Beatles actually weren't doing much at the time. So uh, he was uh, <laughs> he was twiddling his thumbs and he, he, he really enjoyed doing it. It was good fun. He only did the first two series, but, you know, that really helped to get this thing off the ground and raise the money to do the next series and so on and so forth. Now, earlier uh, when we were talking to Rob Gulgulias, the original art director, we asked him this question, and now we're interested to get your point of view. What are your thoughts or maybe reasoning as to why Thomas has an older fan base, people well past the expected age to continuously enjoy Thomas? I never knew how uh, popular Thomas was until I went on to some social media sites. I mean, I've done some re-records of the themes, and um, it's it's amazing how, uh, how the response is. And they're all between 18 and... 25 i think that's the main demographic strangely i don't know why i mean i suppose uh it is a lot different what we did including bob gold galliers what we did for the original series was very original at the time thomas was they tried to nominate it for a bafta but they didn't have the category for it to go in because it was really it wasn't stop frame animation it wasn't cartoon it was actually live well i don't know what you call it really. anyway so that's why it never won a bafta because there wasn't the category for it. So I was told, or maybe they just thought it was crap. I'm, I, I really don't know. But uh, I mean, five-year-olds now would never have heard it and they don't miss it because they've never heard it before. So they're quite happy with the new stuff, which is fine. Um, but I think the old stuff, I think I think the old stuff had a certain charm about it, especially because it was recorded with um, 35 mil and it was, you know, you saw all the accidents and the crashes and everything, which you're not allowed to show anymore. It was a, it was a groundbreaking series at the time. I mean, when you think, I can't remember what was around kids wise at the same time, but there was there was nothing like Thomas. 
and it was really groundbreaking stuff. So maybe uh, the parents told the kids and they caught on to it. I don't know. I have no idea. But long may it last, I say. We actually um, had this thought, Rob, that there wasn't really much shows involving like peril and conflict at the time. And the closest show we could think to being at having the same tone as Thomas the Tank Engine was perhaps Feynman Sand, because it too was stop motion animation. It involved a lot of perilous action scenes and all that. But yeah, aside from those two shows, there wasn't really the sort of action packed children's shows targeted towards that age demographic. No, I mean, previously you had um, Thunderbirds and all that, Stingray and all that type of stuff. Mm. Which Thunderbirds, I guess, falls in a very similar category. Yeah, but they, they Thunderbirds were, were aimed at a, an older audience. I mean, I don't think, I think five-year-olds mm. were stuck with Andy Pandy back then and stuff like that. So <laughs> it, it was definitely very different for that age group. Yeah, I, you know, I think that might have something to do with it. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think the three of us would agree that the music that you and Junior composed for Thomas, particularly the main theme tune, um, is shared widely and fondly across uh, word of mouth and social media. In your opinion, why is it that the compositions uh, resonate with so uh, many people so deeply in contrast to, I guess, the current soundtrack? Uh, uh, well, I, I tell you the truth, I really don't know. And it's global. It's all over the place. I mean, I'm getting stuff on YouTube from South America, Japan. It was always big in Japan. You know, Europe, all over Europe, and, and certainly North America. You know, there's a lot of people out there that love the old old theme and all the rest of it. The new theme is uh, is very good, and um, I, I don't know why, because they own the rights to it anyway, Hit Entertainment or whoever it was at the time. So I don't know why they wanted to change it, but, you know, change it they did, and they rebranded the whole thing. And where it is today is miles away from the original. But, you know, it's still really popular. As I said, so a five-year-old doesn't have a reference point. The five-year-old can't say, well, I prefer the old stuff because he doesn't know it. It's not on anywhere. The only place you'll see it is on YouTube. I definitely think over the years, yourself and Junior and many others have been able to maintain that legacy. And I'm not too sure if you're aware, but in the um, most recent, I guess, rendition of the Thomas theme, there's a little guitar riff at the beginning that plays off the original theme that you both wrote. It's a very swift, but it's definitely there. What, in the new Thomas series? Yes, yeah, 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 in the yes. current series. I wonder if I'll get a royalty for that. I doubt it, but there you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's nice. A little, a little, you know, um, what's the word for it? Salute to the old guys. Yeah, um, listen, just out of curiosity, you guys are obviously big Thomas fans. How old are you lot? Do you mind me asking that? You can cut this out if you want. That's okay, yeah. That's fine. Wants uh, to go first. <laughs> uh, I'm the oldest person here, Mike, and I'm 26. Right. And we've been talking with other contributors and other guests we've had on this show and on this podcast, rather. And they've said how they sort of were attached to the show through to like late childhood and then during adolescence they sort of fell out of it and then when they got into their 20s they got into the show again. So it's sort of like I relapsed back into Thomas and Friends. Yeah. You see, with, mm. with me, I'm currently 19 and I first got into Thomas by watching a whole bunch of VHS tapes uh, yeah. that my parents got for my sister when she was born. And by then right. they'd already been 10 years old. And yeah. As Parry said, I had a period of about 
five, six years where the thought of the show didn't cross my mind. But then one day I was in the garage, came across the old Come For The Ride VHS. Yeah, And yeah. I just started watching it and it's been smooth sailing from there. Yeah, I'm uh, 25 and uh, quite similar to the other two lads. Um, I was born and raised on it, then quote unquote put away childish things and then uh, came back to it when uh, my half-brother started getting into it and kind of realized this is a wonderful little quaint thing to enjoy and um yeah it has a great depth of character to it uh from the music to the stories to the visuals um yeah that's why i enjoy it as well yeah that's interesting well that kind of answers your own question there then about why do people like it now it's because of that you know they've they've heard it through their parents or their siblings or something dug one out of the uh the archives and um no it's good stuff i mean i you know i'm really proud of it i think uh, i think dave mitten did a great job i think everyone on the team did a great job it was uh certainly a team effort and uh no I, i'm very proud uh, to have been part of it it's good news yeah as it is the tv series has been going on for what it's nearly 40 years now since its original airing don't say that don't <laughs> don't say that quietly <laughs> yeah what 1984 it came out didn't it in the uk mm. so do the math that's what 30 years coming up isn't it? yeah thir- 36 years only seems like yesterday <laughs> <laughs> good it's great I, I love it i mean i you know i'm i'm still re-recording some of the old themes just for a bit of fun and shoving them off on youtube and you know all the fans kind of really love it so um i'll carry on doing that i'm enjoying it so far as long as i can keep doing it when i flick through my spotify and just see what new music is being released sometimes your account pops up and there's a new piece of music there and it definitely puts a nostalgic kick in the step as i'm walking to work or something like that good good i'm pleased with that i mean i try and keep them close to the originals because i think that's what people want they don't want a completely different version of something i mean there's a jazz version of the thomas theme i don't know who's done it i can't remember now but it really is jazzy fun and it's absolutely brilliant it's fantastic a long way from the original style so therefore you don't get a reminiscent type thing with it but they've done it really well there's lots of stuff out there and all the crazy rappers have done some amazing stuff on it i mean you know, the reverend would be spinning in his grave but i mean I, I, <laughs> I think it's good fun actually yeah i think while saying that i think one of my favorite uh re-renditions that you've done um happens to be i guess a fusion of uh two pieces of music that you've done i think you dubbed it it's great to be bill and ben but i think where that creative license is allowed uh you can produce some rather marvelous stuff as well i like that one because i didn't want to just do great to be an engine and i wanted to do bill and ben and bill and ben's theme really you can't extend it very long it's boring you know what i mean so you just wanted that little snippet in the middle and it just seemed to work well you know with great to be an engine so it was good fun doing that yeah yes all of us have been enjoying your recent renditions of your old themes mike and i wanted to finish off the conversation by asking you what more can we expect from you over the next few months and years will you be releasing more of this stuff to youtube have you got any other projects going on at the moment um the thomas stuff is more of a hobby than anything else i mean i just do it when i've got nothing else to do at the time i just spend and i've got a i've got a want to do it. it's not like um, there's a lot of fans say well why don't you do the uh theme? one of the themes can't remember anything off the top of my head but you know i'm thinking well i don't really want to do that i'll so I kind of wait until I think of something that I really would enjoy doing and I'll knock that out. I'm also, I've been developing my own show, like everyone does, for a long time now. And it looks, I got teamed up with a company called Carrot Entertainment, who 
do a thing called Sarah and Doc. I don't know if you noticed that. I don't know if you knew of it, Sarah and Doc. You might not have it in Australia. I'm not sure. I've heard of it in passing, yeah. Yeah, really nice little show. Very popular over here. And it, it was, um, they teamed up with the BBC to do it. Anyway, I brought them this, the idea I had for my show. And um, they jumped on it. And we've been developing it for absolutely years. It's it's such a hard game to get involved in because it's such big money. You, you know, you've got to spend a lot of money on this stuff so we're now going down a puppet route because nobody seems to be financing animation anymore unless it's an already established brand uh, trying to get new stuff off the ground is next to impossible because uh, there's so much of it out there so much animation so we thought we'd go down a puppet show route a bit like sesame street's idea so we could still do it as an animation in the end but that's that's primarily what i'm working on now okay then be looking forward to see how that comes out in the future so would i <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah no i will i mean i'll obviously when we've decided on everything and we know exactly what we're doing then we can do some uh, maybe when we've done the first little pilot which we i think we're just about to start doing um i'm sure it'll go up on social media everyone's going to hear about it i'll make sure of that fantastic well mike it has been an absolute honor and a privilege to have you as part of the right on track podcast we can only just wish you all the best with your future endeavors and again thank you so much for making the time to speak to us no it's an absolute pleasure thanks guys it's and best of luck down in australia you know as i said keep in touch Thank you, Mike O'Donnell. But I'm afraid that brings us to the end of episode 39 of the Right on Track podcast, where we covered a surprise for Percy, make someone happy, and busy going backwards. And next episode, what will we be covering, Parry? On the next episode of Right on Track, Connor, we'll be looking at three stories from the Scarlowy Railway. Duncan Gets Spooked, Rusty in the Boulder, and Snow, the final three stories of Series 5. And we'll be joined by a guest as well. Um, he was one of the very first fans of our show. He is very active within the railway community in rails, and he's got his own YouTube channel as well. We'll be joined by Matthew Bellis, and I am very much looking forward to having him as part of the podcast. This episode of Ride on Track has been an absolute wild ride. We've had so much fun putting it together for you, and we hope you enjoyed it. But until next time, I'm still Denim. I'm still Connor. I'm still Parry. And this has been the Ride on Track podcast. Adios, guys. Cheerio. See you later. You've been listening to the Ride on Track podcast, hosted by Tom Parry, Connor Jonas, and Tom Denham. To keep up to date and on schedule with Right on Track, you can follow them on their various social media platforms. Platform 1 is Facebook. Facebook.com slash Right on Track Thomas Podcast. Platform 2 is Instagram. Sin underscore Right on Track. Platform 3 is Twitter at OnTrackThomas. Platform 4 is email RightOnTrackThomas at gmail.com. And on Platform 5, for more show details, visit sin.org.au slash RightOnTrackThomasPodcast. 
The theme was composed by Headmaster Hastings, edited by Tom Denham, produced by Sim Media. <laughs>